Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor of gathering together as family in a unity by means of a faith that you've provided by grace, Father. Thank you so much for building us up as a family. Thank you so much for sanctifying us as a family uh, as well as individuals, Father. Thank you so much for reminding us of your grace, your mercy, and your love, and that when we do forget about it, you're always right there faithfully, uh, with your own faithfulness renewed every morning, just reminding us that these things are true, and they're not difficult to understand, that they're the very primitives of our spiritual life, Father. Thank you so much for giving us Holy Scripture that just edifies us this way. Father, we pray for those that are willing to be here, desiring to be here with us, with their family, but cannot be for illness sake. And we pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a wonderful evening like this one even a reality. We just pray for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make. This is part seven. Um, in my absence, the Spirit used Scott to deliver a wonderfully placed series titled, We Are Nothing More Than Vessels of Mercy. And I, for one, absolutely loved it. Uh, I followed along. It was uh, just wonderfully placed, uh, as it always is. I'm not surprised. But um, one of the capstone statements uh, was made on Tuesday up here on the board. We should appreciate God's mercy for us, not test it. We should appreciate God's mercy for us, not test it. That was one of the capstones, believe it or not, uh, from my perspective and it may not sound like much, given the amount of time and energy that was expended in preparing, teaching, and learning the five messages in the series. However, it is like most spiritual truths, that simple. We should appreciate God's mercy for us, not test it. The issue is that it usually takes us a while to see the forest through the trees, our lives are so chock full of distractions that we fail to see the simplicity of devotion to Christ alone. We dote on ourselves and we dote even on others whom we love. And we forget the one love. We forget the one love that matters most in our lives. Again, as the Spirit emphasized through this series, we should appreciate God's mercy for us, not test it. So for me personally, this was a little side lesson that the Spirit had gripped me with during the series. And all I could think about was the Lord's response in Matthew 4 to the devil's temptation to put God to the test. And so we have to think about how we are tempted to do so in every aspect of our lives. How are we tempted 
to do so, to, let's say, put God's mercy to the test, God's grace to the test, God's love to the test. We have to think on our own terms. Are we putting God to the test in any way? His mercy, His love, up here on the board. This was one of the themes. Putting God's mercy to the test. This is one of the hallmarks of believer testing. We know that we are tested day in and day out. Um, And from Holy Scripture, we know that this is one of the hallmarks of believer testing. In other words, it's easy to forget, I should say, and I use easy lightly, it's easy to forget God's mercy in our lives. And it's a real test. So this is one of the hallmarks of believer testing. While we can't be tempted to the point where we lose our salvation, so says 1 Corinthians 10.13, 2 Peter 2.9, we can be tempted to disregard God's mercy. And it has tragic results every time. Because something has to supplant the thing that's now missing in our lives. If we forget about God's mercy, something has to fill the void. Something has to give us hope, right? And if our hope is no longer in God and His mercy, His forgiveness, His grace, His love, where do we have to put it? In ourselves? In others? It's going to go somewhere. And that's one of the great temptations, and it's one of the hallmarks of believer testing. Again, we can't lose our salvation, so says Holy Scripture, but we can be tempted to disregard God's mercy. Let's look at those two Supporting verses up here on the board. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. In 2 Peter 2.9, I give you the Amplified. Then, in light of the fact that all this is true, be sure that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Again, the point on the board, putting God's mercy to the test. This is one of the hallmarks of believer testing. Can't lose your salvation, but we certainly can be tempted to disregard God's mercy. Jesus, our prototype, passed this test under direct attack from Satan himself. I alluded to this passage earlier. Something presumably uh, most of us could never withstand for very long, if at all. If Satan was to come test us today, chances are we'd all fail. We would all fail miserably. And there would be a time where we would probably disregard God's mercy. We'd probably lose sight of the primitives in our lives. Go to uh, Matthew 4, 6. Let's look at this passage quickly. Matthew 4, 6. So this is all the things. These are the things that sort of floated through my own mind as I was listening to the uh, closing um, message on Tuesday to that wonderful series, that five-part series, This was one sidebar that the Spirit had with me personally, so I'm just sharing with you. Maybe some of you had it as well. Matthew 4, 6. 
under direct attack and said to him, If you are the Son of God, this is Satan uh, tempting Jesus, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. In other words, put God to the test. Throw yourself off this uh, cliff, if you would. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We should appreciate God's mercy for us, not test it. And that gives us the right perspective, knowing that He's merciful day in and day out. But we should not test it. So, like I mentioned at the start of class, one of the capstone principles after five messages titled, We Are Nothing More Than Vessels of Mercy, is up here in the board. We should appreciate God's mercy for us, not test it. One of the areas that the Spirit had us analyze in our own lives was why. Why do we ever disregard God's mercy in our lives? Why would we ever do that? It seems asinine. Yet, if we're all honest with ourselves, we do it probably every day. Why would we ever disregard God's mercy in our lives? And what is the evidence of our doing so? Well, for starters... If we lose sight of His mercy, we disengage from the very thing that serves as the anchor of hope for our soul. If we disregard His mercy, we disengage from the very thing that serves as the anchor of hope for our soul. When we disengage from Him this way, presuming we must do this or that to realize some other peace, we suffer horribly for it. If we lose sight of His mercy, we suffer horribly for it. So the second point of review from this series was up here on the board, disengaging from God's mercy. This may be one of the most common things we believers do. To disengage from God's mercy, this may be one of the most common things we believers do. When we disengage from our Lord's mercy, we relegate ourselves to the imperfect abilities of the flesh to deliver us from despair unto hope. Compare that to Hebrews 6.19. It's like cutting the line to our anchor on rough seas. Go to Hebrews 6.17. Hebrews 6.17. Again, disengaging from God's mercy. This may be one of the most common things we believers do. Again, when we disengage from our Lord's mercy, we relegate ourselves to the imperfect abilities of the flesh to deliver us from despair unto hope. Hebrews 6.17 In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, the point on the board, disengaging from God's mercy. This may be one of the most common things we believers do, and it always has tragic results. 
When we disengage from our Lord's mercy, we relegate ourselves to the imperfect abilities of the flesh to deliver us from despair unto hope. In other words, if we lose sight of his mercy, we have no hope. What hope do we have if we lose sight of God's mercy in our lives? We're all sinners, right? If God doesn't have mercy on us, we're doomed. So if we lose sight of that, we have to turn to imperfect abilities of the human flesh to somehow deliver us. This despair was expressed in part as a function of the basement in Scott's ongoing elevator analogy. That was a pretty cool analogy, I thought. Um, but it was expressed as a function of the basement in Scott's ongoing elevator analogy. I think we can all agree that most people have no difficulty in identifying overt sin or evil in their basement. And I'm assuming everyone in here followed along. You know the analogy I'm speaking about, the basement, where, uh, you know, the elevator goes as low as it can go, and you get out, and there's skeletons over here, and there's, you know, garbage over here in the soul. And everybody has, nobody has a problem, it seems, in identifying, well, there's some ugly things over there. That's one ugly skeleton in my closet. But that's not the point. I think we can all agree that most people have no difficulty identifying and even agreeing with overt sin or evil. However, the point that really stuck out to me was that most of these same people reject the notion of their being equivalent and sometimes arguably more sinister sin and evil that actually appears good. In that same basement, it's, oh, wow, that's so ugly. But that's not that ugly over here. Maybe I'll try that on and go up the elevator. That's the one that I think is sticky for people because it's easier for the human flesh even to look at this and agree that that's not that bad. And the Bible has some very strong language, and this is, we all need to take this to heart. The Bible has some very strong language regarding the righteous deeds of the flesh. For example, this came up in our studies, Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. That's as good as it gets. All your righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Any questions? And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Up here on the board, all our righteous deeds, I should say deeds as well. This may come as a shock to a lot of Christians in this world. It's difficult to fathom that what man thinks is good is mere rubbish to the holy God of the universe. Why? Because man habitually uses the wrong standard of measure. That is, I would argue, everybody in here does it every day, including myself. I hear it all the time, and it, you know, it's maddening because once you see the truth of it, people will use, ah, I don't even know what a good example is, people will use worldly standards and say, do you see how God's blessing me? But you're using and you're thinking with world standards. Do you see how God's blessing me? I got my promotion. I got my new car. I got my new hairdo. I got my new this. I got new friends. I got new whatever. And the world's like, yeah, yeah. That's the wrong standard of measure. But yet we impose that standard of measure on God and then attribute misappropriate his grace to it. 
And the whole time God's saying, no, 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 that's, that's filthy garment. Hey, stop, stop. That looks good to you and your buddies, but to me it's, it's a filthy garment. That's a real problem for most Christians that I've met, which is why I'm always suspect nowadays. Does this person even know the Bible? Anyways, this may come as a shock to a lot of Christians in this world. It's difficult to fathom that what man thinks is good is mere rubbish to the holy God of the universe. Why? Because man habitually uses the wrong standard of measure. Proverbs 16.11 up here on the board. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern. A just balance and scales belongs to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern. Again, for many Christians, this idea of there being no righteousness derived from self is truly heinous. It's, it's um, objectionable. Most Christians I've met, if I tell them to their face, there's nothing good about you. Nothing! You were born in sin. Most of them revolt. Most of them are back on their heels. Like, wait a minute. No, there's some good. No, there's nothing good in you. Except by the grace of God. So this idea of being no righteousness derived from self is truly heinous to most Christians, at least the ones I've met. I've had many arguments with so-called Christians that say that man is inherently good, born that way, just flawed, you know. But inherently, we want to do good. Just flawed. So, if we were to contemplate that premise for a moment, if this were the case, where does that leave God's mercy? If, in other words, if we're righteous in ourself already, we just have a few chinks in the armor. Where does that leave God's mercy? What about the purpose of God's mercy? What about the revelation of God's grace? Where does that leave it? If you're self-righteous enough, where does that leave it? Is it somehow impaired or maybe even unnecessary? And when mercy leaves the absolute and approaches the idea of unnecessary, we have to watch out because it's an easy ride to self-righteousness altogether. Let me say it again. When mercy leaves the absolute and approaches the idea of unnecessary, not even got there, just approaches it, goes in that direction, we have to watch out because it's an easy ride to self-righteousness altogether. Yet Holy Scripture remains. I'll give you the amplified version of Isaiah 64.6 now. Up here on the board. For we all have become like one who is ceremonially unclean, like a leper. And all our deeds of righteousness are like filthy rags. We all wither and decay like a leaf. And our wickedness, our sin, our injustice, our wrongdoing, like the wind takes us away, carrying us far from God's favor toward destruction. So in other words, if we leave these things behind, if we begin to depend on our own self-righteousness, this is what happens. It takes us away, carrying us far from God's favor toward destruction. Up here on the board, 
both obvious evil, this is from Tuesdays, I believe, both obvious evil and the dressings of the piggy are in the basement. And that's that dichotomy. Everyone, nobody has a problem with pointing out the overt sin and evil. But people struggle with the self-righteous, the good-looking stuff in the basement. The stuff that gains approval, even, uh, on moral grounds that the world sets, which are not God's standards. That is the whole point. You cannot superimpose a morality or a system of morality or a system of thinking on God that originated from the world. Both obvious evil and the dressing of the piggy are in the basement. These are the vestiges of sin. And when we try to take the elevator up, we get rejected. No matter how dressed up we are, God is not impressed. That's all I could think about when you were teaching it. That people go down to the basement and they put on their Sunday best and they go, oh, I'm going to go impress God now. I look pretty good. And you go up the elevator and, and, and he says, get out of here. You, you, still, you smell like sewer. But I look good. No, you're a filthy rag. Huh? I wrote a blog uh, that's coming out this weekend about being best dressed. And it talks about that Greek word in duo, putting on Christ. You want to go up to the top floor and fellowship? You've got to put on Christ. So here are the key principles. Some of you are like, you write a blog? Yeah. Here are the key principles. I'm serious. You guys are laughing? There are people in here right now that don't read the blogs. I know for a fact because when I ask them, they're like, I didn't read it. Like every time. It's, I, it's, it's ridiculous, but well. Here are the key principles from that wonderful series titled, We Are Nothing More Than Vessels of Mercy. Up here on the board, Our Wretched Basements. His Spirit is reminding us of our own horribleness that He saved us from. Even of the good we did in the past that was dressing up the pig in an attempt to earn God's favor, that's in our secret basement too. All the good, all the things we did to try to impress God. Even if you're, you know, so-called well-intentioned, but I wanted to do good for God. Yeah, but you went to the wrong wellspring. You didn't depend on God's mercy and His grace. You depended on self-righteousness. You decided to dress yourself up. The Word says, put on Jesus Christ. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. That's what the Word says. You ignored all of that. Dressed up the pig and tried to make it all the way up. The elevator shaft. <laughs> and then you got sort of tossed out. In fact... And this was interesting as well. Uh, most of us were fooled very young. And I know some of you are like, yeah, my parents lied to me. Hey, join the club. No offense, Mom, love you. Right? But she was deceived from her parents and so on and so forth. There are whole religions that specialize in deceiving people, getting children in really early to do indoctrinate them into the lies. And you know how it is. The parents are just too concerned with um, living their own self-righteous lives. Anyways, childhood deception. We've been deceived from childhood that we just aren't all that bad. 
Isn't that what they learn? I mean, if you ask Tammy, she teaches first grade. That's what the school systems tell these kids. You're not that bad. You're just a little naughty sometimes. So let's work on that. Let's be the little engine that could. Let's make ourselves better. Let's improve ourselves. Let's work on our self-esteem. And little Johnny, don't pick on little Sue because you're hurting her self-esteem. And, you know, uh, this whole thing. And everybody gets a trophy and all this. Uh, we've been deceived from childhood that we just aren't all that bad. It's almost come to the point where um, we're precluded from telling someone that their deeds are bad. I mean, God forbid you offend somebody with the truth. Imagine if we taught this in schools today. So we've been deceived that we're not all that bad. And therefore, here's the dangerous consequence. We don't think we're fully dependent upon God's mercy. That's what happens. We think, well, if I'm not that bad, that was my premise five minutes ago. Well, where does that leave mercy then? If it leaves the absolute and starts approaching the unnecessary, each step you take towards that end, where does that leave the mercy of God? And where does that leave your dependence on the mercy of God? The closer you get to unnecessary, the less you need God's mercy, right? Next thing you know, you don't need his mercy, so what are you grateful for? If you're not grateful, what kind of fellowship do you have with the one who saved you? I guarantee you right now there's a whole host of Christians that think they only needed this much help to get into heaven. They only needed this much of God's mercy because they were swell. Law-abiding, upstanding, moral citizens. Okay, so I lied. You know, I've done this and I cheated on my taxes and I've done, you know, blah, 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 blah. done a few things. But I'm a pretty good guy, so all I needed was this much mercy. Well, if this is all you needed from God, which is ridiculous, where does, where does that leave your appreciation for Him? Dependency is the key word on the board. We've all been deceived, but there's a dangerous consequence. We don't think we're fully dependent upon God's mercy. So dependency is the key word on the board. We need to understand the absoluteness of this statement up here on the board. We are nothing without the Lord. We are nothing without the Lord. To accept this is to be set free by it, knowing it does not depend upon us, but upon God who is merciful. Thank God. Read Romans 9. Instead of propping up self, we should be bowed low at the foot of the cross, knowing our total depravity. To accept this truth gives us freedom from the chains of self-righteousness. And if you remember two weeks ago, that's how I ended. I think that was some of the connective tissue that Scott brought up the day after or the next uh, lesson. Now, moving right along in our review, the Spirit didn't let us rest too long on just these thoughts alone. He never usually does. Rather, he plucked at our souls even a little more asked us to ponder deeper root causes, root causes 
Why would we ever forget these things? I mean, these are the most magnificent things in our lives. Uh, why would we ever forget them? What's the root cause? For example, using Galatians 3.3 as the impetus, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? He wanted us to ask ourselves this question. Being perfected by the flesh, is it because we don't believe God's love for us? Having begun by the Spirit, now we're going to perfect ourselves. Is there a, a strain of that question on the board? Is it because we don't believe God's love for us? Is that why? I mean, it's a fair question. Why are we not wholly dependent on God? Aren't we really saying that we don't trust His love enough? Isn't that what we're really saying? That, you know, God, I'm so, don't get me wrong. I really appreciate all you've done for me. I'm waiting for heaven. But it seems, now don't be offended, it seems I wanted this thing and you gave me that. Huh? Can we do like a return, like, you know, a Christmas or birthday, you know? Do you still have the receipt? Because I'd rather have that. <laughs> huh? That's insulting. That's saying he doesn't know us well enough to give us what's good for us. That's us saying his love is insufficient. His grace, therefore, the expression of love, is insufficient. That's in direct contrast to what we read in Holy Scripture. His grace is sufficient. Hmm. It's a fair question. Why would we ever try to perfect ourselves by the flesh? Have you ever met a Christian that would openly admit that they don't believe God loves them? Have you ever met a Christian that says, no, nah, I don't believe God loves me? That's kind of a hard thing to find, I would think. I would think most Christians would say, God loves me. Yet most in this same group suffer the daily consequences of being disengaged from God's mercy. Mercy is nothing more than an expression of grace, which is an expression of love. Oh, God loves me, but yet this same people, they're disengaged and they suffer the daily consequences of being disengaged from God's mercy. It's hard to believe when reading plainly stated doctrine in Holy Scripture, such as, up here on the board, Ephesians 2, 4-5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And as I've taught you many times over the years, you are saved daily. If He saved you this way, mercy, grace, love, mercy, grace, love, then that's the same way He saves you every day, even as a believer. You have to, understand, you have to engage mercy, grace, love. You have to believe it. That's how he saved you then. It's how he saves you today. And if you disengage from the wellspring that's able to save you, then you get what you get. You get the leftovers, which is only what the flesh can give you. So as I've taught many times in the past, love cannot help but express itself. And when it comes to God and fallen creatures, mercy is a pillar of his expression of love. Consider the following principle from this past week. 
up here on the board, were it not for God's mercy, we would have all been consumed as vessels of wrath due to our unrighteousness. In kindness, he transformed us into vessels of mercy through Christ, Romans 9, 22 to 23. The reality is the following perspective then. This came up as well. Totally helpless and hopeless. Throw yourself upon the mercy of the court. God's glory is his mercy and grace and compassion. Exodus 33, 19 to 20, 34, 6 to 7, Ephesians 1, 6 to 8. Throw yourself upon the mercy of the court. God's glory is his mercy and grace and compassion. When we throw ourselves with abandon upon the mercy of God, our appreciation for his absorbing all of our pain and anguish shoots through the roof. That's how we gain. That's how we increase in appreciation. When we throw ourselves with abandon upon the mercy of God. This is why the Bible constantly encourages us to do just that. Go to 1 Peter 5, verse 6. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. I don't think we went to this particular passage this past week. So the Bible constantly encourages us to do just that. Throw ourselves on the mercy of God. 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How do you think he's going to devour you? He's going to tempt you into, um, uh, he's going to tempt you into disengaging from God's mercy, if you would. That's the temptation. Or put God's mercy to the test even, rather than just appreciate it as we started off this evening. So your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But what? Resist him. Firm in your faith. That's the Greek word stereos up here on the board. Firm means solid, firm, referring to what is immovable, will not budge, stable, not changeable, standing fast without buckling or giving way steadfast but resist him this is how you resist the devil this is how you resist uh, temptation you put the word in front you put your faith out front our faith is in the rock as deuteronomy up here on the board deuteronomy 32 18 states you neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the god who gave you birth this brings us up to the final point in my review of we are nothing more than vessels of mercy. Learning to appreciate mercy. Do we fully appreciate the pure mercy we've been shown by the God of all glory? 2 Corinthians 4, 1-7, 2 Timothy 2, 20-26. Do we? Do we fully appreciate the pure mercy we've been shown by the God of all glory? Up here on the board. 2 Corinthians verse 1 therefore since we have this ministry as we received mercy we do not lose heart so you see the connective tissue between mercy and hope not losing heart changing gears now that concludes our review of we are 
nothing more than vessels of mercy. And I'm going to have to ask you to concentrate now because we're two weeks removed. We're on part seven, um, but part six was two weeks ago. So you're going to have to dig a little deep into your uh, minds here, back to where we were a couple weeks ago. So concentrate. We're going to try to join our thoughts with those we had a couple weeks back. Remember the following? The things we do for love. For the benefit of all the people observing our daily choices. Remember, God sees the heart. This is the message title that we're on, part seven. God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make. The things we do for love. For the benefit of all the people observing our daily choices. And because all men are weak in certain areas, we consider their weaknesses even while we act in the liberty given to us by Christ. This is a little thing called perspective. Perspective. And we spent a little time on this a couple of Thursdays ago. Uh, with the right perspective, we are empowered. With uh, the wrong perspective, we are weakened. Right perspective, empowered. Wrong perspective, weakened. So therefore, perspective really is everything, especially given the title of this evening's message that God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make. With the wrong perspective, the end result is usually some manifestation of fear. I'd argue that after love, think about this. I was thinking about this today as I was preparing this lesson. I'd argue that after love, fear is the greatest motivator of all. Think about what motivates you. I would argue that love will walk, true love will walk through fire. That I believe. True love will do anything um, to meet its objective and, until either something or someone kills it. But fear is a close second, isn't it? Fear is one of the greatest motivators of all. I want you to take some time this weekend to ponder that. Because everyone in here is afraid of something. God sees your heart, first of all, so there's no, you might say, I'm not afraid. God's like, <laughs> immediately. But what about the rest of the world? What about the choices you make because you're afraid? You could stand up for something. Maybe you're thinking about work right now. Maybe you're thinking about something in your home. Maybe you're thinking about, I don't know what. But you could stand up for something, but you're afraid to. Maybe it's a conviction you have. And everybody else around you differs in opinion. And you're afraid. It's amazing the things we kowtow to based on the motivation of fear. So I want you to think about that this weekend. What fear is in your life? Everybody wants to talk about love, but what about fear? Fear motivates us to do all sorts of crazy things, doesn't it? Motivates us to do all kinds of crazy things. For example, fear is possibly the greatest marketing tool the world uses. Fear is, I'd argue, having spent 20 years in industry, all we used to do is scare people. I'm not kidding you. I was in the, on the sales and marketing end. We used to scare people. Be like, if you don't have this technology, you're going to lose. Someone's going to come in and break into your network. And you're going to get sued. I used to do that voice, too. 
for a fact. <laughs> it's the, I mean, fear is like, I mean, love is right there, right? Oh, out of love, you know. Okay, put all the mushy stuff aside for a second. What about fear? You want to sell someone something tomorrow? Scare them. So think about this. We're inundated with this problem-solution set around fear. Fear is front and center always in our lives. The next time you're listening to the radio or watching the television, take a look at what's really motivating you to want to purchase some product being sold through a commercial. What's really motivating you? No, I just like, I just like that purse. No, you're afraid that your rat-a-tat purse isn't going to hold up under scrutiny when you go back to work next day. But if you have this really nice, expensive one that everybody approves of, you know what I'm saying. What's really motivating you? Fear of being what? Rejected? Because you're the person that can't afford the good pocketbook or the good kicks if you're a guy or whatever. I don't know what guys spend their money on nowadays. What's really motivating you? And what's that got to say about you and God? Did God forget to give you enough money to impress your friends? Did God forget to make your hair follicles grow? And now you've got to walk around bald? Did God somehow screw up on me? He ran out of uh, Rogaine in heaven? Whatever the heavenly Rogaine is and... He didn't sprinkle enough on me, so it stopped growing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, what are we saying? What are we afraid of? That I'm going to get judged by some moron that thinks that bald people have something wrong with them? Am I really afraid of that? You know the answer to that. But that's only because I have Christ. There are droves of men out there spending millions and millions of dollars, if not billions, on this because they're afraid of being judged they're afraid that what God didn't love them enough to give them hair fear sells just about everything so the next time you're watching television listen to the radio ask yourself what's really motivating you to want to purchase something Chances are the advertisers have injected your soul with some form of fear. Fear of what? Losing your hair, for starters. Some people are afraid of that. How about your sex drive? You need this pill. How about your job? How, how about um, fear of losing your identity? That's a big one now. They have whole um, product sets that people spend a lot of money on to protect their identity in the digital age? Or how about fear of, um, what, your soccer mom friends? You're afraid of them because you have a beater car? They show up in the newest Toyota camera, Toyota caravan, whatever the heck those things are called. It's all shiny and new, you know, the 20-speaker system, and the kids come rolling out of the back, you know. And you show up with a beater with a cracked windshield and a muffler that's hanging off, dragging. What are you afraid of? To hell with them. Like, for real, to hell with them. 
You should get out and go, I love Jesus. Screw the rest of you jackasses. <laughs> no, I'm serious. And then kick the ball in their face. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Welcome back. Right? Oh, see, I got to repent from that. <laughs> Flashback from being a kid. You know what I'm saying? What are you afraid of? Your soccer mom friends are not going to approve? And their little launches, their specially made launches? Or maybe it's something as fundamental as fear of death. I mean, people, look, people are afraid now that they're not going to have enough money to bury themselves. What do you care? <laughs> For real. You've seen these commercials? <gasps> are your family going to have enough? You need insurance. I don't need insurance. That's their problem. <laughs> they can throw me on a wood pile. I don't care. Burn me up. What they do in India? Throw a tunic on me. Burn me up. Well, I care. Fear. Fear. Everything's fear. It's, a, it's an abomination, especially when you're a Christian and you fear all these things. That's an insult to God. Commercials are designed to scare you. And then once you're scared, at the end of the commercial, they sell you the solution. You scared yet? Oh, no, don't worry about it, because here, I got the solution. Magically, the same guy that scared you has a solution. That's weird. What was his motivation? So the question is, up here on the board, <clears throat> we, this is all review. Have you ever strove for something out of fear? Love, friendship, acceptance, etc. Right perspective empowers us. Bad perspective weakens us. If you have a good perspective on love, friendship, and acceptance, these kinds of things, you're empowered by it. If you have a bad perspective, you're enslaved by it. You're striving after the wind, as Solomon would say, which is what I would argue most Americans are doing, most American Christians to boot. For example, <clears throat> if we have the right perspective, we know that we are loved beyond measure by God. Uh, something tells me you shouldn't ever forget that. But when you're worried about um, spending thousands of dollars on your hair because of your fear of being disapproved by your worldly peers, what are you saying? about that statement that God loves you beyond measure. What are you actually saying? Not what comes out of your mouth. What's your actions saying? You see, a right perspective would say, Phew. a wrong perspective is enslaved. So if we have the right perspective, we know things like that God loves us beyond all measure. And this frees us up to follow the Lord's command then to do this. John 15, 17. If you're not so self-absorbed, then this I command you, that you love one another. What about this, though? How about this question on the board? It's hard to love like this if you're afraid of rejection, right? Doesn't, doesn't this, I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that look like to you Sort of like a reckless abandon? Doesn't that look like um, kind of a risky thing? 
Jesus Christ, I command you that you love one another. Aren't you kind of putting it out there? Do you know what I'm saying? Aren't you kind of just putting it out there? If you follow this command, you bet. And Satan says, hmm, you might want to be a little afraid. You're probably going to get rejected. So don't follow that command. It's hard to love if you're afraid of rejection. You know what I say? Again, to hell with the fear of rejection. To hell with it. We're not called to be worried about following Jesus' commands. If He commands us to love others, then let's love, let's love each other. Let's love others. And who gives a crap? Sorry. Still on vacation, kind of. Who cares if someone doesn't respond? That's not the command. It doesn't say, well, love them if they love you. It says, love. That's my command. You, you take care of what I tell you to do. You love. And stop worrying about whether or not they're going to receive it right or they're going to reject you to the day you die. That is not my command. That is my business. So you see, fear plays a big role even in the primitives of our calling in this life. So I say to hell with the fear of rejection. And what is rejection anyways but a strategic tool that the kingdom of darkness uses to control us? The fear of rejection, doesn't that control people? Hasn't that ever controlled you in the past? If there's one theme throughout our lessons over the past decade, and even my blogs, and those are the things that he has me think about. When I have you know, a week and a half off like I did when I leave the country, this, I think about my family here, my congregation as the shepherd. It gives me time to reflect and step, step away from the fire and think about what he's been doing with all of you because it's been like a decade now. And one of the things that just flies out of um, that kind of thinking is this. Be yourself. Be yourself. God made you. He didn't make any mistakes. He made me with, I don't know, sparse hair. At least on my head. You know what I'm getting at? Whatever. He gave you a pretty good brain, or he didn't. He gave you certain gifts, or he didn't. But don't ever let fear control you, because that is exactly the lever that the kingdom of darkness will use every single time to lead you around by the nose. Be yourself. That's the most beautiful thing. When I see someone being themselves, I'm just, I feel like hugging them. Honestly, I feel like running up to them. I don't, it's creepy, so I don't. <laughs> but I feel like running. Don't you like, you know, when someone's, when you can, when you know that someone is in love with Jesus Christ and they just say, this is me, you know. I just want to like hug them because it's refreshing because most people are pretentious, even Christians. And it's, uh, it's a put off. Just be yourself. Never fear rejection, especially when you know you're just trying to love others unconditionally. Don't worry about it. 
What is, what is the command? Jesus Christ says, love one another. And by that, they'll know you're my disciples. Now, if you put all these weird disclaimers on there, but I'm afraid of being rejected, so I'm going to wait. Well, you're not following his command. And therefore, they don't know you, that you're his disciples. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus loved without abandonment. So much so, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When he was hanging on the cross. Never fear rejection, especially when you know you're just trying to love others unconditionally. Never be overcome by your fear of rejection. As I wrote about in a recent blog concerning public speaking, uh, glossophobia is the technical term for fear of public speaking. This is from gingerpublicspeaking.com. So many speakers I work with are more afraid of being afraid than of the actual speaking. I think uh, FDR was on to something when he famously said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Most people are afraid of shadows, in other words. The kingdom of darkness um, is great at scaring us and using fear as a lever to separate us, even, from the love of Christ in a practical sense so that we disengage from the primitives. Grace, mercy, love. Grace, mercy, love. How the kingdom of darkness controls even believers from time to time. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. There's a lot of truth to that, even in the spiritual life. Back to the point, if we function in love, we make good decisions. However, if we lose our good perspective, become overcome with fear, we begin making poor decisions. Because at that point, even our motivation is off. Therefore, we apply the following scripture. Go to Romans 12, 21, and I've got to pick a spot. Romans 12, 21. Hope you were able to make the leap back to a couple of weeks ago. This is all pretty much point of review connective tissue. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Up here on the board. But overcome evil with good. This takes divine perspective to enact. This is diametrically opposed to the deepest desires of the flesh. Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies do good to those who hate you. Luke 6:27. Remember such hearing is a gift from God for believers only. Again, overcome evil with good. This takes divine perspective to enact. Right perspective, you're able to do it. Wrong perspective, you'll never do it. Overcome evil with good. This is diametrically opposed to the deepest desires of the flesh. Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Two weeks ago, and I'll, I think I'm going to close after that, but I do want to bring this up. Two weeks ago, we closed with the notion of functional love. Functional love. Go to Luke 17, 1. Luke 17, verse 1. Two weeks ago, we closed with the notion of Functional love. In other words, we don't just say we love. 
We don't just read commands like we just read from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We actually do it. We actually perform love amongst each other, starting with those of the faith, of course. Luke 17, 1, he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, oh man, this guy, why do, Lord, why do I got to put up with this guy? He's such a PIA. That is right. All right, thank you. John's like, yeah. <laughs> Pat's looking at John. <laughs> and if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, what? Forgive him. Forgive him. That's what love looks like, my friends. I'll, I think I'll end here. Luke 17, 1 to 4. That is what functional love looks like. That is what functional love looks like. Have you forgotten where you've come from? Have you forgotten those ridiculous thoughts you've had right before class? I like some of the things that Scott was saying. He had a list of things. It's funny how we um, judge someone to do this thing, and then the very next moment we're doing it. <laughs> so, do we forget? Do we forget that someone loved us enough to save us, knowing all our dirty little secrets? And then we turn around and we forget to love others the way Jesus Christ commanded us to? Where's the congruity there? Where's the um, continuity? Where's the connective tissue? Where's the flow of grace? We sever it. And we stop loving the way Jesus wants us to love. He wants us to functionally love. It's not enough. And this is what our series, this particular series has been about. God sees the heart, but the rest of the world sees our choices. And we make choices every day to functionally love or not. To express love or not that brings glory to God. Amen? Right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for gathering us together as family again this evening and just setting a, a straight, a mind straight, a heart straight on the things that matter most to you. Father, we just ask your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.